Welcome to the Progressive Practice Podcast, social performance practice at the core of the energy transition. This first season is funded by the Tentrans Research Project. Julie is our first guest on this podcast. We have recorded a total of six episodes, which are all conversations with professionals working at the interface between the renewable energy industry, government and communities in South Africa. Some of our guests identify as social performance practitioners, others like Thule work for government or are consultants working as intermediaries in the energy space. We are starting our podcast series with an overview to the background of the much celebrated South African Renewable Energy Policy Instrument, the REAP program, which stands for Renewable Energy Independent Power Producer Procurement Program. It is the first episode and therefore explains the history and progression of the policy itself. The REAP is overseen and implemented by the Independent Power Producer Office or the IPP office. With REAP comes an entire new jungle of abbreviations and rules. If you get lost, we suggest you have a look at the podcast description for a reminder. Tuli Lamini, on record now, works for the IPP office and lays it all out for us in simple terms. Important to note, Tuli is speaking to us in her personal capacity and not on behalf of government. Welcome, Tuli. Um, thank you so much for having this conversation with us. Um, how are you doing today and where are you locked down in the world and is it sunny where you are? <laughs> thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm, I'm glad to be here and uh, I'm locked down in Centurion, <laughs> which is where I, I live. And um, unfortunately, it's a bit cloudy today because it rained um, early this morning and it's wonderful to have rain after such a long time um but um it's it's beautiful and it's wonderful to be here thank you for having me awesome <laughs> so yeah i'd just like to know a bit about your background the story of your career what did you study how did you get into the work that you do now and what is it exactly that you do in your role with the national government okay so my journey started in 1994 that is my professional journey <laughs> where I worked for um, the then Volkskes Bank in Malilane. And um, after a while, I then went and I studied. Um, I did my master's in, in Belgium. Before then, I'd done my undergraduate in, in, at the University of Switzerland and so in social science, and I did economics and public administration. And then I worked in, in um, Volkskes Bank in Malilane, which was later changed to... Um, APSA Bank and then after that I, I went abroad to study and um, further my studies and did my master's in uh, global management and development in, in, in Antwerp for two years and then I came back worked for national government in Swaziland where I was focusing on regional integration I was working for the SADC sector coordinating unit for, for, for the Swaziland chapter because each country was given a responsibility in SADC to manage for the entire region and at the time Swaziland was responsible for human resources development and I was working in that unit. Um, after a number of years working there I was asked to go to the head office in Botswana where I worked about two years in Botswana. I came back to Swaziland and then I was asked, I, I, I actually applied for a job in uh, Namibia at the SACU Secretariat, the Southern African Customs Union. Then I moved to Namibia for about three years. Then I was recruited by uh, SAF, um, the Southern African Trade Hub in Botswana. 
So I moved back to Botswana for just about a year. And then I, um, while working for, for South, I was in trade facilitation at the time, a regional trade facilitation. I, I got to notice the gap in, in the area of energy that when we talk about trade facilitation, there's a lot of focus on customs, um, the customs authorities, immigration issues, transport issues, but very little attention was given to energy. And then I was asked to, because I was a trade capacity building advisor at SAF, and I was asked to organize a training for regional energy, energy regulators, for actually the energy regulators in the SADC region. And I worked very closely with RERA in, in doing that uh, training. We went to Zambia, we hosted it in Zambia. And it was like a new world was opened to me. I got to know how energy regulation works and I got to meet people in the area and I was completely fascinated. And I fell in love with energy and I thought, you know, not enough attention is given in trade facilitation to energy when it is one of the key uh, trade facilitators. And I just couldn't understand why very little attention was given to it. So I decided I want to specialize in, in energy economics. And then I applied to, to the University of Cape Town and I was accepted to, to, um, <laughs> to, to the Energy Research Center where I met Hole. <laughs> And um, a new world was opened to me. And from there, I was um, recruited and uh, requested to apply to the IPP office um, as a graduate trainee. And that's how I got to where I am today. And um, when I applied there, it was realized that now I've worked in several spaces and I've just completed a degree in um, energy development studies, which sits very well with overseeing the socioeconomic development component of, of the office. So I was recruited as a socioeconomic development manager. And my task there at the time was to oversee that function of the office to make sure that we're actually looking after um, and making sure that IPPs are keeping their obligations as far as SED and enterprise development are concerned. So that's that's how I got to where I am. So then that leads in very nicely to my next question, which is, you know, explaining a bit more about what ED and SED are. So this podcast is really about the practice of corporates in implementing South Africa's first and only renewable energy procurement program for large-scale projects. We call it the REAP in the sector, but the sector is quite small still, and even the people working in the industry don't know much about um, the social mm. side of renewable energy, right? Um, could you please take us along a little bit in explaining what the REAP is, why social performance and community development are so mm. key? To renewable energy. So uh, the REAP is actually a response um, by government to the power shortages that were happening around the period 2007-2008 in the country. If you, if you, if one had the opportunity to look at the 1998 white paper, white uh, energy policy paper, it did indicate that um, from about that time to 10 years, in 10 years' time. Um, there would be higher demand um, in terms of electricity than the country could supply. But not enough was done to prepare um, for that period. And um, when the 10 years actually lapsed, it proved that, pro that that projection had been correct. And then we started experiencing um, power shortages in the country. 
So to respond to that, uh, government put together this program, the Renewable Energy Independent Power Producer Procurement Program, to open the door for the private sector to assist in adding electricity to the grid, to assist ESCOM, which was uh, having difficulties due to a number of issues to, to supply sufficient electricity to the country. The, the energy white paper had also indicated that in the long term there would be need to utilize um, independent power producers and to open the door for the private sector to assist in this regard. Uh, in addition to the issue of um, separating transmission distribution generation even in the, in, in, in the national utility. So government responded by putting together this program. But um, government, I always say, was very brilliant and um, insightful in that it decided to not just put an ordinary infrastructural program, but an all-inclusive program that will take care of the development imperative that the country is consistently facing. Because South Africa um, might be considered a, a, a middle-income or even um, one of the strongest economies in the continent, but um, it does have um, significant poverty and it does have development challenges that the government always wants to address. And because of that, government decided to incorporate this key component at the heart of the program, which is socioeconomic development and enterprise development, and to utilize the private sector to contribute to the development of the communities that host their projects and made sure that they give 1 to 1.5% of their revenue to those communities in terms of developing those communities. And as far as enterprise development is concerned, it is more on a voluntary basis where the uh, private sector partners give around 0.6% of their revenue per quarter to support small businesses to grow, to revitalize those rural economies. And uh, the hope is that whatever is implanted in terms of the contributions made by the private sector partners is sustained beyond the 20 years. It can have, it can be amplified and those um, benefits from the investments in social development that they make can be sustained. It's not just something that will um, support the communities while the IPPs are in those communities, but even beyond the 20 years to, to empower them to, to, to be able to determine their own development and generate their own income to make sure that that development comes about. And then the third component that government incorporated was that of local community ownership where every IPP was required to contribute to ensure that the community owns at least 2.5% um, of shares in, in the project company to make sure that those communities are equipped with the ability of not just um, gaining in terms of beneficiation and social development, but also being given the skills to run and know how to sit in a boardroom and, and also determine how to run a, a, a big enterprise like an IPP. And that uh, specific requirement really derives from the Triple BE Act of 2003, which 
specifically cites communities as, as important benefactors of, of um, empowerment. And this is one form of empowerment that government um, wants to see happening and, and therefore uh, it was incorporated in the, in the scorecard of, of the REAP program from inception uh, until now. Thank you so much. Those are um, really important keystones um, to understand, as you say, the, the indeed really brilliant decision from government to um, marry energy objectives with developmental objectives, which mm -hmm. is such a desperately needed, I guess, almost creative move mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. utilize all opportunities we have to try and foster economic development and transformation um, mm -hmm. in the post-apartheid era. From where REAP started, which is now almost 10 years ago, no? in 2011 it was launched, so nine years to be precise. Um, if, one, if one looks down the line over the last nine years or so, are there highlights that stand out for you, maybe just one or two, um, that you associate with those community development obligations um, of the industry? And I suppose besides highlights, there might also be challenges. In fact, I know as an industry we have spoken a lot about the learning the learning curve we all are on, the entire REAP ecosystem as such, to really maximize the opportunities this policy or this procurement program offers. But yeah, I would love to ask you to just share some of the highlights in terms of achievements, maybe also shed some lights on challenges you have heard or experienced, specifically ED managers or ED teams in companies grappling with in trying to achieve maximum impact for communities. Uh, I think there are several highlights. I think the first one that comes to mind is the fact that we have reached the one billion, one billion rand mark where IPPs have contributed to SED. Um, to date, they have exceeded one billion in terms of their contributions. And um, the second highlight really for me was last year in May uh, at the Africa Energy Indaba, I think in Cape Town, where the IPPs were invited to showcase their SED projects and to bring their um, uh, uh, beneficiaries to tell the stories of how the SED contributions have changed their lives. For me, it was such a heartwarming experience to hear from the different um, individuals who had benef benefited from these SD SED projects talking for, the, for, for themselves and indicating how their lives have been impacted, how their lives have been changed, and um, what difference the SED contributions have made for them. And it was also wonderful to, to go to the Eastern Cape uh, just before uh, that event to um, see one of the, the projects that um, were, were supported by the IPPs um, in, in, in one of the high schools and again there to hear the people that have been affected and, and really changed by the, these contributions come out and speak for themselves to say, you know, I was just a mere farmer, um, but um, because of the IPP contribution, I, I'm able to now commercialize some of my products and, and sell them to, to a key outlets, uh, retail outlets, it, it just, it was wonderful and heartwarming for me to, to hear that and be a part of that. And uh, in terms of the challenges, I mean, the challenges are, um, are many. 
But um, I think the, the challenges that are there is the issue of collaboration that we always, uh, we've always been talking about, even in the community relations connect to say, it's really important for the IPPs to learn to collaborate and not to see themselves as competitors once they become uh, sellers, once they move beyond the point of be being bidders and becoming sellers. Just the ability to partner, to be able to give high impact, um, high impact uh, social development. And although we have seen IPPs contribute over a billion rand to, to social economic, socioeconomic development, um, the impact is still not as high as one would want to see it. The difference on the ground is still not as high as one would, would like to see it. Of course, there is a difference that has been made, but I think the other issue is that we're not even measuring that difference um, at, 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 a, at a, an aggregate or at a macro level to be able to say that um, indeed, because of the REAP, these are the differences, these are the claims we can, we can lay to development that has happened in South Africa, because we're not measuring um, uh, the impact that we are making. And just an, a cursory view of it um, on the surface, one does see that the programs are making a difference to individuals' lives, but it's not obvious how that difference can be sustained. It's not obvious how that impact is, is so great that you can see a marked difference in people's lives. So that still needs to be deepened. The issue of impact needs to be deepened. The issue of collaboration between IPPs is still very important. And I think the challenges that um, sometimes IPPs have in, in some communities that are quite, um, you know, know their rights and want a stake in, in, in uh, constructing some of these um, projects. And uh, there's always the issue, every time you engage with communities, I mean, this week we had a meeting with uh, municipalities, and the issue of uh, IPPs bringing in service providers from outside the localities where they are is a sore point for community members, and it, it sort of agitates tensions between the IPPs and the communities that, that host their projects. So those issues are still there, but um, some progress has been made. And there's been a lot of um, effort put in by the IPPs to accommodate uh, communities on some of these issues. So I'm encouraged, even though there are challenges, I'm still encouraged that IPPs are amenable when, when spoken to about uh, trying to really deal with some of these issues. They're, they are willing to listen, they are willing to put in the effort to, to try and meet communities halfway. Thank you. That really does paint a picture of a really complex practice field for everyone involved. Um, and a lot of the, the power mm. sits with IPPs mm. in, in terms of making decisions of how they engage and how they implement um, the opportunities, the investments, Wow. But also how learning does just take mm. time no? for companies to come together and realize opportunities together, get to know each other. Mm, yeah, learning does take time. I think you're very right in, in pointing that out, Holly. It, it, it just, it's a process of evolution. It's not something that, that happens overnight. And um, just adjusting to some of the community attitudes and um, how to do better 
in, in, in implementing some of the requirements. It's been a learning journey even for, for us at the IPP program to even adapt some of the requirements as we move from one bid window to the next and from one program, IPP program to the next. It's a learning journey and it's, it's not, there are no um, rules that are laid out for you to say this is how you should traverse this journey for you to succeed. It's, it's learning by doing for everybody and um, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't always work well. Yeah, yeah. And indeed also for companies to get to know their context, know their place and people where they now are neighbors and, and present. And Tuli, you also mentioned something about um, amendments on the policy or, or maybe the requirements, government's um, ability and, and capacity to listen to what might be needed to be changed to improve impact. And in the, in the sort of public conversation, some critics say that economic development should not be part of any procurement program and certainly not of the renewables procurement program because it's not part of coal or whatever the reasons might be. And in fact, companies or private sector shouldn't be doing community development. It's a task of, of government to provide services and foster the local economy as it is part of sort of local government mandate as well anyway. So that is a conversation and an argument and a tension, I suppose, um, but also an opportunity. And I know your unit has thought and, and listened and also started shifting a lot of elements in the, in the um, procurement um, program itself. I wonder, though, if you were to do it all over again, <laughs> you could start from scratch. What, what would it be that you might be doing differently? Is there something from the get-go you would maybe change? And just maybe to throw an example in which something I'm toying with in my mind often is, um, is there maybe an option to select renewables projects, select bidders, or assess them against their community development intentions, plans, um, maybe even the relationships and how they have partners or partnered or not with communities who either own land or have opportunities with projects? Just ideas I'm, 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 I'm playing with. Um, but I'm, I'm sure there is... It's not an easy answer, and perhaps even within your organization, it's, there are different opinions. Um, so just yeah, a question to what have you learned about the reality of working in the economic development team inside the procurement office, which does grapple on a day-to-day -day basis, I imagine, with those questions to how to best procure for economic development outcomes. You know, um, the issue of the private sector um, not uh, and the, the program itself not being um, a development program one that is forced to focus on development, has been there from the very beginning. I mean, it, it's been an outcry of, of uh, some of the, um, the, the IPPs. But over time, uh, some of the IPPs actually want to participate in, in, in social development in the communities where they are located. They've embraced this idea and they want to contribute and give back to the communities that host their projects. So. Um, it's like you're saying, it's never a one clear answer or silver bullet on how, how people really feel about, about um, socioeconomic development being at the heart of the REAP. But um, in terms of um, changing it and whether national government should have or shouldn't have involved it from the very beginning, I think um, it really was a very good and innovative approach by government to, to do this. And I would still say it, it has to continue. Um, but um, some of the, the rules around uh, how to strengthen partnerships and collaborations, really, um, I, I think there's still improvements on how 
the rules can be changed to facilitate some of these issues. Um, like we are saying, it's a, it's a learning by doing experience. Um, there have been difficulties of, of um, collaboration, as I've indicated. There have been difficulties around community trusts and, and, and how that um, aspect of the program can be improved. So it's, it's always really um, a process of learning by doing. And as you move from one iteration to the next, trying to do better and fix um, that which has been brought to your attention to say this is uh, more of an encumbrance than uh, um, something that can benefit the communities going forward. So there's always that effort of trying to learn, do better, change what can be changed, while still being consistent with um, the, the legislative framework that also requires that we, we do this work. Um, that's taking on board issues of the triple BE, the triple uh, PFA. All those issues have to be accommodated when um, a framework like the ED framework is, is, is um, constructed. So I, I'd really, I would say you hit the mark when you say we're all learning by doing. It's still that process even uh, in, in, the, in the IPP office. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for being open to respond to this question. It, it would be so nice if we knew the answer and right? how to do things perfectly. <laughs> but that in itself is probably an impossibility anyway. Mm, it's, it's really not an easy, there's no silver bullet. There's no one answer. And you can't please everyone because um, the, the views and opinions on, on, on the issue of economic development um, are, are very varied. And uh, it also touches on the issue of the tariff, just how much having this economic development framework affects the tariff, which then affects the consumer and some of the consumers who may be um, poor are also now, it, it then becomes a domino effect from one um, issue to the next. But uh, in terms of the substantive question, should we have it or not? I think at this point it's inevitable that we, we have to continue with, with having it there. It's just adapting it to uh, accommodating all the different needs. That is the difficult part. And we see, even though, from what I, from what I understand, REAP still is unique globally in terms of its ambitious economic development inclusion. Mm. But yet other programs, even scaling solar in, in some parts of Africa, have included or started to include um, economic development objectives to, to different degrees. But there is a, a trend I can see, I think. And mm. it is, I think, as you say, important to be aware, mm. so aware of the trade-offs and to make very careful, deliberate decisions for how you design because the tensions don't go away. Yeah. Yeah. And it's always encouraging to see that other African countries are learning from the experience of REAP because really government can't do everything on its own it does require the assistance of um, different partners in society to get involved in solving the issue of social and economic development in, in, in a country. Um, there has to be some kind of partnership and even in that approach, you know, even in that, at that level, you do need the private sector where they can to, to assist as much as possible. And REAP has shown us that it is possible to, I like to say, legislate uh, <laughs> s 
social uh, CSR in a way, uh, although it's always looked at as something that is uh, peripheral and at the discretion of a company. But it is possible to actually say this has to be done, it's important for it to be done, and to get it done mm. at the end of the day. Sure. We are left with two questions. One is mine, and the other one um, I'm going to hand over to Tasneem for, which is a very complex one. <laughs> Just brace yourself. <laughs> but to start on the, on the more gentle one, maybe. You've been participating during lockdown um, in, in the, I think, almost in, in a lot of the community of practice sessions, the community relations connect sessions um, that were hosted online for renewable energy practitioners, but also mining practitioners primarily social performance um, professionals who would, who would join. And I wanted to just ask, is there something you could maybe share, any reflections or so, what stood out for you from those sessions? I, I must say that I enjoyed the sessions and I really learned a lot from them. They, were, they allowed me, as somebody who is in the social development practice, to learn together with other social development practitioners and to also get to know some organizations that are doing tremendously amazing work to bring about socioeconomic development in the country. I, I, I was very saddened, really, when I learned that, um, that it's coming to a wrap and I couldn't believe it. And I wasn't prepared. I don't know how I had missed that. <laughs> it's, it's, it's coming to a close. I was really, really saddened. I, I just couldn't believe it. And I, I, you'll recall that I even got in touch with you to say, is this real? Is this true? <laughs> because I, I didn't expect it to, to wrap up so, so quickly. And I have been bragging about it, even in the IPP office. I have been talking about just how wonderful my experience has been, my learning experience has been through the Community Relations Connect. And the thing that actually stood out for me was focus on soft issues that are completely ignored in our everyday life, and yet they encumber the delivery of social, uh, socioeconomic development. They really do. Issues of race do affect how you can deliver as an ED manager or as a company to your community. Um, issues of woundedness that we were not really even aware of or conscious of in our work that were spoken about. And I, I wanted to take the lessons that I learned from there to, to even the IPP office to say, you know, these are issues that we need to be sensitized and be aware of even in our work internally as the IPP office and learn from that experience and bring in those experts that we, we got to know about, your, your Dr. Jude uh, Clark, your, your Nomfundo, um, uh, to, to talk to us about some of these things because I think we can learn a lot if we are more conscientized, we are more aware of what really affects not just the work that you, we do but the relationships that we build in our work environment and with the communities that we serve. Because even if we don't work with, directly with communities, we have internal and external clients and whatever woundedness we have can be brought to bear as we um, relate and uh, connect with those, uh, th those internal and external clients. So we have to be sensitive to some of these issues. And that experience with uh, the Community Relations Connect really brought to bear that awareness in me 
that I feel must be shared even with my organization. Wow, beautiful. Thank you for sharing. Mm. No, thank you for, for, for organizing that and, and really for running it for so long. I, I have, I, I think sometimes to myself that, you know, the IPP office should, should actually continue this work. You know, I don't know if uh, people would see it this way, but I, I really think someone needs to continue this work at that macro level and um, run with it the way that you guys will run. I don't know if the IPP office uh, would be willing to do this, but it would be wonderful if somebody um, decided to, 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 to continue the work you're doing because it's, it's not something we can just um, leave where it, it, it is and, and, and not be able to continue it. It really is necessary to continue. We need this as a, as a social um, practice community. Yeah. Thank you for those reflections. So I think moving away from the gentler, emotion-filled reflections, I think, <laughs> onto our last very complex That's reflection. Scaring me. <laughs> no, not at all. Um, just in your position and your work, how do you think government policy can work in support of a more reflective social practice? And, and how can it do that with integrity and authenticity in this day and time? Also finding itself at this interface between public and private interests and at the coalface of the energy transition. For me, there are two ways. One of the recommendations that um, Hole in, 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 and, and, and Maschaba in, in undertaking the work that we did with USID on the SED learning event, they, they made a recommendation that there needs to be a, a forum that sort of impacts on policy formulation. That's one of the ways that, uh, uh, to answer the question that you're asking me, Tasneem, um, where there can be a way of influencing policy from practice and from the bottom up, where something similar to the Community Relations uh, Connect can have access to, from time to time, engage with the IPP office and give feedback of how some of the policy that is there impacts on their work that it should be consistent, it should be um, an open process of communication where both parties are learning from one another and feeding off one another. Um, so that policy forum that is informed by the practitioners and by the private sector to impact on, on, on changes going forward would be useful. That's one way. I don't know how you framed it. Uh, don't I remember the exact framing you had in, in, in your policy recommendations, Holly, but I recall that as one of the recommendations you put forward to, to, to government. And then the second issue is the issue of a renewable energy sector charter. I, I really think that if we had a renewable energy sector charter, we would have the opportunity to, from time to time, look at uh, some of the policy that is in place and allow the private sector to make inputs on how the policy can be changed or recast to be more practical on the ground. And also just to open the room for them to, to be heard in, in, in framing policy because um, uh, the, the process of putting together a sector charter allows the private sector to also be able to comment on each of the elements that are put forward to, to, to be part of that, that um, particular sector. So I think a, a, a renewable energy sector charter would make a difference because it would feed off all the experience that has been there on the ground. 
It would also feed off the expertise of the private sector as our uh, hands and feet on the ground. And it would also uh, feed off what the, the government's intentions are as far as development is concerned going forward. So we need that. And, and the fact that it's reiterative from time to time, you need to sit around the table and review it would also give it that opportunity of being a live, ongoing process. So those are the two, two ways that I think can assist uh, Tasneem. Yeah, thank you so much for those reflections. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, really, really clear and strong. And I love it that there's two, which sounds like a feasible number to work towards. <laughs> yeah, no, it's just, it's just really my thoughts. Um, I don't know if I'm allowed to speak for national government here, but I'm just speaking as an individual who's worked at the IPP and uh, uh, have had this rare and wonderful opportunity to, to, to be part of this wonderful process. Is there anything else you'd like to say in closing? Anything else to add? Well, just to say that it's, it's a privilege to, to work for the IPP office and um, it would be wonderful. I would really like to get my hands and feet dirty like uh, one of my colleagues, Frisky, likes to say. <laughs> It would be wonderful to actually uh, one day experience what it is like to be an ED manager on the ground implementing pro- uh, policy. Because it's one thing to be part of a team that actually puts policy together, but it really would inform policy making if there was that experience of going out and practically implementing policy uh, from time to time, or at least witnessing how it's done. Uh, and the, some of the, the, the challenges that one experiences, it would enrich the whole process. Um, what, my desire is not just to remain in policy uh, uh, formulation and uh, oversight, but also to be part of that process of uh, policy implementation. So I always envy um, the ED managers sometimes because they are the people that interact with the communities. They have the highest job satisfaction in the room in, in, any, in any given moment because they are making a practical difference to poverty alleviation in the country. They are making the difference. They are out there giving. They are out there changing lives. And for me, that's just one of the, the most important reasons for living, to, to give, to make a difference, to, to make someone else's pain to, to reduce or take away someone else's pain on a daily basis, to feed a stomach um, uh, uh, that would otherwise not be fed. I mean, it, it's, it's so satisfying. It must be so satisfying for them. So I always look up to them, and I, I really envy them a lot. And one day I, w- I wish to walk in their footsteps. Powerful. I so agree with you. Yeah, being one of the intermediaries, it's, it's a very specific perspective. But in fact, you have sparked another idea, which is one, maybe we must organize some learning journeys where we, where we step into each other's shoes for a day or two. Yes, yes. I, I like that. You know, like the idea of take to ch- mm-hmm. a child yes. to work. <laughs> take, take, a daughter to, take a daughter to work or take a, whoever to work. I, I think we should have a take, take a policy. Take a policy maker uh, to side. <laughs> implement it. To, to cite and uh, have them actually do the work for a day, a week, maybe, and uh, also have uh, the, the opposite end of it as well, where the ED manager sits there in, in the IPP office and recommends where policy should be going, um, be it a day or a week, 
but let's let's experience each other let's walk in each other let's walk a mile in each other's shoes so whether that mile is a week or a day but let's try it and just see what what difference we can make and uh, what we can learn because it's very different when you you when you're required to actually do the work um it's different to when you are just giving the orders of saying this must be done it must be done this particular way it becomes very different when you've experienced how it is to do it and you are more i think sensitive in even in your policy formulation <laughs> when you've experienced what it means to actually go out there and and, and uh, form a community trust and make sure that it works in a transparent and uh, above board manner to to just putting it on paper and and and, and commanding that it happens yeah well thank you so much truly your many ideas have been invaluable for everyone listening incredible yeah <laughs> no it's been it's been a pleasure it's been a pleasure thank you for giving me this opportunity truly shared a lot of insights from the belly of the beast and reflected with us on the question government is working on which is how do we enable greatest impact for communities through this program she speaks about the complexity of social practice and how also government policy is a living document that needs to listen and adapt. She highlights two recommendations. On the one hand, a forum that impacts on policy formulation, bringing together practitioners and policy makers to allow for policy to be influenced bottom up and through practice experience. On the other hand, she also mentions the, the options of a renewable energy sector charter to allow the private sector to make inputs for on-the-ground practicality. The next episode on the podcast is a conversation with Masse Chaba Mabilo, who truly referred to already and who is a thought and practice leader in the industry.